sermon passage comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Our preschoolers, y'all can head toward the doors and head on to your class. Your teachers are there. The Webbers have y'all today. For everyone else who's staying in the room, I do want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word. If you brought a Bible with you, uh, if you want to pull out something on your phone, or if you don't have either option, we have the passage on the screens behind us that uh, we'll be looking at. We are in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. We're going to go all the way through verse 24. If you're newer to the Bible, uh, the book of 1 John is toward the end of your Bible. You can literally just go to the end of Revelation and start flipping backwards, and you'll hit it pretty soon. We have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're in 1 John chapter 3. It's a big 3, little 11. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. There are two major themes in the letter of 1 John, two. Now, he covers a lot. He talks about a lot of different themes within Christianity, but there are two major themes that he really wants to drive home in a lot of different ways. The first is what we've covered the last six weeks, light. Light was that first theme, and we saw from 1 John 1, 5, he said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And then from there, from 1 John 1, 5 all the way to chapter 3, verse 10, John has been showing us what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. He's been calling us to a life of righteousness or holiness. Now we get the second theme here in 1 John 3, verse 11, and that theme is love. Two themes in the book of John, light and love. 
he's going to unpack this theme of love through the rest of the letter. And he introduces it in the same way that he introduced the first theme. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this isn't the first time that John has mentioned love in the letter, but this is the first time that he's dealing with love for love's sake. Before, earlier in the letter, love was used as a way to show how we can know that we know God. And now, John is setting out to show us that love is not just a good thing that we should do. Instead, it is central to who we now are. Loving one another can be, you know this, one of the most difficult and convicting commands that you can come across in the Bible. It seems really simple. Love each other. That sounds like it comes from God. That's, I'm not surprised I find that in the Bible. But when you actually set out to truly love other people in your life, you discover it's not so easy. However, I would say this command to love one another is at minimum the most central and maybe the most important command that you could find in this book. Love one another. In our passage today, John focuses on love in three ways. Three ways. So if you're a note taker, there will be three points to the sermon. Three ways that John focuses on love. First, he shows us that the requirement of love, the requirement Second, he shows us the rhythm of love. And third, I'm a Baptist, he shows us the reward of love. Yeah, it felt good, didn't it? For every Baptist in the room, you just felt that deep in your bones. The requirement of love, the rhythm of love, and the reward of love. Let's take them one by one. First, he shows us that love is a requirement. A requirement. Love is a requirement for Christians. And that's important. That's important for us to, to say right out of the gate. That it's not optional. It's not even advisable. Love's not just a good thing. It's not something that's just admirable to, to aspire toward. You know, it would be great to be a loving person one day. You know, it's just all those loving people I see out there. What a, those guys are just wonderful. I would love to be that. Love is required. It's required of Christians the way that degrees and work experience are required for some jobs. You ever been job hunting before? It's not fun, but if, you, if you've ever been job hunting, you, you realize you come across some jobs, and you know within the first five seconds that you can't have that job. You, you can't have it, right? Because you look at the, the requirements, the qualifications, you're like, I don't have that degree, I don't have that experience, and you move on to something else. It's, it's a requirement. Some of these things are requirements, you know? I can't just, like, talk to Lucas or, or Eric or Field and just be like, hey, guys, like, I'd like, you got any doctor jobs, like, available, you know, just, you know, just trying something else. Like, can I apply for, like, associate doctor of, of theology or something? You got something like that? No? Oh, no. No. I can't. I can't. I don't have, I don't have the necessary requirements to, to, to have that job. Lo it's, love is like this. It is a requirement. It is required of Christians, so much so that John is emphasizing here, you cannot be a Christian and refuse to love other people. You can't. You can't be a Christian and refuse to love other people. If you're a Christian, you must love. And none of us can get off the hook. And 
to make it even more difficult, we know that this applies to other Christians, brothers and sisters. You have to love one another. It applies to other Christians. It applies to non-Christians. You can't say, well, because Muslims, you know, are, are practicing idolatry, we don't have to love them. Show me that. No, you, that, you can't get off the hook. But, but it, it gets even more difficult. You're supposed to love your friends. You're supposed to love people who get on your nerves. You're supposed to love people who annoy you. You're supposed to love obnoxious Kentucky fans after they beat your team the next day. You have to love me. I'm sorry. It's required. And, and we're going to deal with this in a minute. You have to deal or you have to love with people who harm you, who hurt you. You have to love your enemies. It's required. And we can't get off the hook. And I don't think this comes as a surprise to, to most of us. Um, it's, it's just pretty standard practical theology for Christians. John, he says as much as he introduces the theme. He says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. He's saying, this isn't new. I'm not introducing something brand new here. This isn't novel teaching. Back in John 13, we find Jesus saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love, if you have love for one another. Now, of course, the raw command to love other people, it stretches back even further, back to the days of Moses and the law. We find commands to love others. However, what's new here with Jesus' command, because it says, a new commandment I give to you, is the power to obey it. See, in the prophets, they foresaw this day in which the law would be written on the people's hearts. And this comes through the fulfillment of the Messiah's arrival and the, and the spirit that would flow. And our love, we see, will flow out of our union with Jesus. We're going to emphasize that here in a minute. But loving one another as Jesus has loved us, that's what's new in Jesus' new commandment. So John is basically saying, I'm not adding to that. I'm not, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, and that's, that's how it's new. But John's saying, just follow what Jesus said here. Obey Jesus' command and love one another. Now, love is a requirement for two reasons. First, love is a requirement because God commanded it. And I know we don't love that. It's like, why should we love other people? God said to. And that, that sounds a little too simple for us, and we want there to be better reasoning for it. And it's like, no, God said. He said you have to. I mean, I take it up with him. He said you had to. It's, it's a command. But, but I do think it's worth reflecting on love as a command. Why, why should I love people this week? Well, God, God is demanding it of my life. He commands me to do it. You see, whenever someone in authority over other people commands something, it's, it's usually a reflection of who they are, and it's a reflection of the outcomes that they desire for the people that they leave. So, so kids in the room, I have any kids still with me? Okay. All right, you, you guys, in school, classroom rules. You think about classroom rules. Why does your teacher demand, it's not optional, demand silence during a test? Demand it. You, you have to be silent. If not, you're going to have a consequence. Why do they demand it? Well, they're not asking you to be quiet because they're, they're just no fun. They, they want you to be quiet during a test because of what they desire for you. 
They want you to succeed. They want you to do well on the test. And they know that if there's a lot of people talking and there are distractions in the room, that you're not going to be able to focus and you're not going to score well on your test. And she wants the best for you. He wants you to succeed in life and succeed in this class. And so that's why he or she gives you the rule to uh, be quiet during the test. Kentucky's basketball coach, Coach Calipari, I'm sorry, I switched it to basketball, but these illustrations are just, they're on my mind really fresh. Um, he requires his players to attend all of these unique media trainings. He wants his players to be very familiar with how to engage with, with the media. He also requires his players, not all of them, but, but some of them, he requires them to attend like these, these financial uh, uh, literacy seminars. He wants them to learn how to properly handle money. Do you know why? Because John Calipari at Kentucky, he is building his entire program on making a huge difference in the lives of the top athletes in the country. He wants to propel them to the next level so that they will be professional athletes. And because he wants them to succeed at the next level, he requires them to do some of these things that will guarantee that. So that when they do sign a multi-million dollar contract, they don't blow all their money. And whenever they do get in really hot media settings and they're just coming at them with questions, they have a sense of calm and presence and they can handle that well, that's what, what he requires. It's a reflection of what he desires of them. Now, this also works on the other side of things. Think about a pastor who, instead of just encouraging, requires his, his church members to attend a particular ministry event on the threat of punishment if they don't attend that event every single time it's made available. Well, he reveals himself to be a domineering person who desires control over his people. Now think about what God commands here. This is an order from the king of the universe. This is a demand. He's not asking you to do something. He's, he's ordering you to do this, to love one another. This reveals his character. Now, I'm not going to get too far into it because John deals with it explicitly in the next chapter. But it's worth observing right here that God's command for us to love reveals his own love for us. He's basically saying, be like me. Love as I have loved. I'm a God of love, so love one another. So before you start to stress over how difficult this command is to obey, you need to remember that the requirement to love is given because God loves you. It reveals his character. It also reveals his desires for us. Have you ever thought about it this way? God commands each of us to love one another. What does that create? What environment does that create? What environment does he desire us to be a part of and to immerse ourselves in? He wants you to be in the sphere of love. He wants us to experience love, not just vertically, but horizontally. He wants us to walk and move and live our lives, giving and receiving love for one another. He desires that we will one day inhabit a world in which everyone is working for the good of everyone else. And so he commands us, love one another. That's why it's required. Love is also a requirement, though, because it is in keeping with our new life in Christ. This is interesting. 
We're required to love one another because of who we are in Christ. John, he, he develops this point by contrasting those who dwell in the domain of life with those who dwell in the domain of death. If you look at verse 14, in verse 14 he, he writes here, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. So we're required to love one another. Why? Because Jesus has raised us from the dead. We have new life in him. We have passed spiritually out of death and into life. And now he emphasizes this point. I love what he does here. He does it by highlighting the negative end of this argument. He says, now, whoever does not love abides in death, hating other people. Not loving other people is consistent with a person who is still spiritually dead. So, so the argument he's making here is you're both expected and empowered to love one another because you have been raised from the dead. You have new life. You can do it. Now, from there, he, he goes to an interesting place. He develops his argument by, by offering this really negative or, or just a counterexample. He says, don't be like Cain. Cain? He points us to the story of Cain. And he writes, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And then if you go down to verse 15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he points back to Cain. And in, in, in that story, Cain and Abel, his brother, they bring these offerings before the Lord, and God accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's. And Cain is filled with jealousy at the righteousness of his brother and the acceptance of his brother, and he does not love him, he hates him, and he murders him. And, and I, think, I think by pointing back to Cain, John seems to be showing us that the effects of the fall, the, the effects of humanity's plunge into sin were first seen in a lack of love. That's, that's how you first felt the effects of the fall, is a brother refusing to love his brother. Cain hating, not loving Abel. Cain dwelled in darkness in the realm of death. And he's saying this is what sin creates. This is our natural state. And it's very blunt and it's very uncomfortable to think about. But hating other people, feeling contempt toward them, withholding love, it's like murder. That's, that's uncomfortable to think about. It's, it's really blunt. Hating someone is like wanting them to not exist. Hate is always 100% of the time dehumanizing. And we see that in the fact that the word that John uses for murder in this passage, it's actually a lot more brutal than just murder. If we literally translated it, we'd have to have some ears covered. It, 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 I mean, it, it carries the connotations of slaughter more so than just murder. He's making a very blunt point. It's this brutal, utter disregard for human life. And he says, this is what hate is like. 
To hate another person is to slaughter them in your heart. To hate another person is to deprive them of life. And he's saying this is the way of death. This is the way of darkness. This is the way of Cain. Don't be like Cain. Don't hate other people. And, and then, I love where he takes the argument next. It's, it's, again, a little surprising. He says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And, and that phrase just, just seems out of place. Why, why are we all of a sudden talking about our relationship to the world and the fact that the world hates us? I thought he already dealt with that in chapter 2. What, why, why are we returning to this? Um, but, but he's saying... The way of Cain, the way of darkness, the way of death, the way of hatred, that is the way of the world. There is hatred out there. So don't be surprised if the world hates you. And see, he's making a point without, without actually emphasizing it. He says, on the contrary, you should be shocked if the church hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It's the way of Cain, the way of death. They have not passed from death to life so the implication is you should be shocked if other christians hate you you should be shocked if there is not love in the church because they have passed from death to life love is a matter of life or death it's not a trivial thing it's not an optional thing it's it's serious Whoever does not love abides in death. If you don't move in the sphere of love, you move in the sphere of death. For John, not loving means hating. Don't we love to try to draw, make that distinction? It's like, well, hmm, I... I don't know if I can love them. I can definitely not hate them, though. And you try to, like, carve out the space in, in the middle where it's like, I don't have to love them, but, hey, I'm not going to go so far as hate them. I don't hate them, but I don't love them either. John is like, where, you're, you're in limbo. That place doesn't exist. If you have passed from death to life, you are required to love. And if you do not love, you hate. So he says, love one another because it's required of everyone who has been raised with Christ. Okay, so that's the requirement of love. Next we see the rhythm of love. So what does this look like? How does it play out? Because that's where my mind immediately goes anyway. And I'm glad John takes us there. It's, my, my mind immediately goes to this place of, okay, I'm required to love every single person. How am I going to do that? Because there are lots of different types of people in my life. Lots of people that I have different levels of relationships with. And if I'm supposed to love all of them, what on earth does that look like? And also, I want to obey this command. Like, I do believe that I have been raised to life with Christ. And I want to align my life with that reality. How do I do this? What's the rhythm? Um, well, while he pointed back to Cain as a negative example, he now points us to Jesus as a positive example to say, don't be like Cain, be like Jesus. Don't hate your brother, love your brother. Our love is to be based on Jesus' love. And, and this is consistent with what Jesus taught. 
He said, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the blueprint of our love. And this means three things for John in, in this little, little section from verse 16 to 18. That love requires sacrifice, love requires generosity, and love requires action. So first, he says that love requires sacrifice. If you look at verse 16, he, he writes, By this we know love. I love John so much, he gives us these really clear introductory little phrases, and it's like, oh, okay, here's how you know love. And then he tells us what it is. It's so simple and clear. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if you thought it was difficult in in thinking of it as a requirement, now he says, okay, so you're supposed to love everybody. Here's what that looks like. Lay down your life for them. It's not getting any easier here. We know love by looking to Jesus. And that sounds encouraging. But you have to think about what it means to look to Jesus. When you look to Jesus, what do you see? Who do you see? We look to Jesus, we see a love that is sacrificial. Jesus ultimately showed his love for us by laying down his life for us. Now first, we need to marvel at the willingness of Jesus to die for us. His willingness. This is what's being emphasized here. When Jesus went to the cross, I'm switching. Um, when he went to the cross, he did not go begrudgingly. Am I good? Okay. Turn this one off. Good. Test. Thank you. When Jesus went to the cross, he, he did not go begrudgingly. He did not go to the cross because, well, you know, the Father, he has commanded me to go. He sent me. I've got my orders here. I really don't want to go. This is the last thing in the world I want to do. This is miserable. This is terrible. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But I'll go. I'll go because that's the plan. Jesus wanted to go. He willingly went to the cross. He, out of his love for you, he went to the cross. He wanted to save you. Okay, but, but second, we need to see just how much Jesus laid down. Just how much he laid down. Of course, he physically and spiritually and emotionally suffered greatly on the cross in his death. And of course, we can't just skirt past this. He truly died. He, I mean, he really died on the cross. It, it, it happened. He was laid in a tomb. But even before that, Jesus left the glory of heaven and became man, took on flesh. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So John's saying, look to Jesus, who sacrificed so much for us. And when you look to him in this way, reflect that love. Love one another in the same way. That means that in order to love one another, we have to deny ourselves. 
We have to think of others more than we think of ourselves. C.S. Lewis reflected on this, and, and he wrote, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Well, I just threw that one in there. Um, it says, uh, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. You know why we're tempted to love this way? Oh, I love everybody. I love everybody. But you don't love anybody in particular because it's too difficult? You know why? We don't want to sacrifice. Love requires sacrifice, self-denial, humility. That's why John's saying you got to look to Jesus as your example here. Jesus laid down his life for those who were ungodly, those who were weak, those who were unimpressive. We, we, so we need to lay down our time, our energy, our resources, all for the good of others. Loving one another will not be easy. It will not be comfortable. To love one another as Jesus loved us will require sacrifice. Now, I think this framework, thinking of love as sacrifice, helps us think through a very difficult question. How do we love those who hate us? How do we do that? How do we love people who have harmed us in the past? How do we love people that, you know, have you ever, have you ever like wanted to show someone love? You're like, man, we've had, we've had, just, we've gone through it, me and this person. And I'm just going to, I'm going to be the better per bigger person here, and I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to love them first. And I'm going to show them so much love that they're not going to be able to help it. They're going to respond, and their heart's going to soften, and they're going to love me right back. And then you go, and you love that person, and you do all these good things for them, and they still hate you. You know? They still, they just, no, there's just coldness. There's hardness there. The Lord doesn't then look to you and say, hey, you gave it your best shot. You've tried. You can hate them now the rest of your life. Like, thanks for, thanks for trying to love them. How do we love people who are really, really, really hard to love? First, we can say, as a reminder, we are required to love them, Inclu including the people who hate us. We, we can't get off the hook. Second, second, while we are required to love everyone, we can also say that love is shown in varying degrees. Husbands, listen, you don't love other women the same way you love your wives, right? Hope not. It's, it's, there's got to be a difference there. Uh, parents, you, you, don't, you don't love other children the same way that you love your children. There's, there, there are degrees to love. It looks different from person to person. You love your friends differently than you just, you know, love, love acquaintances. So, so there are degrees. So third, sacrifice is the key to knowing how to love those who hate you or those who are difficult to love. It's the key to not return hate with hate. How, how can we desire the good of those who have harmed us because that's a really hard thing to do. But in the words of, you know, one of my favorite movie characters, nobody said the job's supposed to be easy. If you didn't pick up on that, it's okay. But 
Nobody said the job's supposed to be easy. It's not easy. It is difficult. It requires sacrifice. The rhythm of love is modeled after Jesus. And when Jesus laid his life down, he did it for those who hate him. He did it for those who are counted as his enemies. Sacrificial love for an enemy requires us to pray for them, for example. It requires us to desire good things for them. It requires us to to desire their repentance, to desire their salvation. This doesn't mean that you're going to have a deep relationship with them or even a relationship with them at all. But if someone in your life that you know is difficult to love, you're not off the hook just because they're difficult to love. And you are required in loving them to sacrifice, to, to keep your heart open And soft towards someone that you struggle to love, even if their heart remains hardened and closed off to you. And the sacrifice may just be humbling yourself enough to voice one single prayer for that person and entrusting them to the sovereignty of God. Love requires sacrifice, but it also requires generosity. And this is great. It, this is great. John says, you got to lay down your life if you want to love someone. But he also says, you also have to meet their basic needs. I love, I love what he does here. He says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I love that so much. He says, if you have plenty, if you're taken care of, and your brother, someone in your faith family is in need, and you close your heart to them, and you just, you just put up a wall, and you don't meet their need, how could anyone see the love of God in you? No, he says, love requires generosity. The church should be filled with people who have open hearts. That we should love those who are in need by meeting their needs. And, and listen, I don't have to preach very much on this. I've seen this so much in our church. I could, I, we would be here the rest of the morning if I was just enumerating the examples of love that I have seen through generosity. The ways that you guys meet needs. We share needs in our church and they are met. You're in a life group and someone just shares something they're struggling with and that need is met in so many different ways. Even just the amount of anonymous gifts that have been given just because just because they want to bless someone else. The generosity in this church is thriving, and it is so joyful to see. Whether it's giving financially to meet the needs of mission partners, providing meals for new moms and dads, just simply blessing one another with a lunch or a coffee, you guys are reflecting the generous love of Jesus so, so well. It, it brings my heart so much joy, and it's, it makes being a part of this community such a happy experience for my family, for us, and for so many others. But this is what it looks like to love one another, is to love one another through generosity. And then, just to sum it all up, he says, love requires sacrifice and generosity, and it requires just basic level action. This is a summary statement. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He's saying, don't be all talk with your love. And, you know, this is a challenge for us sometimes. We talk about loving other people more than we actually love other people. And, and again, he's not saying just go do something with your hands, you know. 
Don't encourage someone. Don't write them a letter. Don't call them on the phone. Go over there and, like, help mow their yard. Like, do something. That's not what he's saying. We can love people with our words. What he's saying is don't just sit around and talk about the theology of love. You know, don't just sit around and talk about why it's really important for you to love other people. Go and do it. Go love someone. Go, go love them. An excellent way to respond to this sermon would be to make a list of ways that you will love other people this week. Just, just, just think about Think about your spheres of influence. Think about the people that you interact with on a daily basis, a weekly basis, and just ask yourself, how can I love these people this week? How can I sacrifice time, energy, resources? How can I be generous to them? What can I do? Make a list. Consider any needs that we have in the church, how you can meet those needs. Think about your neighbors, think about your coworkers, your spouse, your kids. What can you do this week to love them? Because love requires action. That's the rhythm of love, sacrifice, generosity, and action. And one more thing here, the reward of love. Love carries with it a surprising reward. When we love one another, we can be sure that we belong to the God of love. It's amazing. Love begets assurance. Now, look at verse 19 with me. I want you to follow John's logic. When you love others well, you can have assurance before God. He says in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. By this, John says, meaning by our love for one another, what he's just unpacked. We can know that we are of the truth and we can reassure our hearts before him. And then jump down with me to verse 21. And let's look at verses 21 through 24. John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, John is saying here, if we love one another, if we keep that commandment, our hearts are assured. And so we can approach God with confidence. We don't have to dread his presence. Our love is evidence that we have passed from death to life, that we belong to God. Keeping the command to love one another is evidence that we abide in God and that God abides in us. This is, this is his argument. Now listen, I, we all, this isn't just an immature believer thing. This isn't a young believer thing. All of us are looking for assurance. No one in this room wants to be fooled, wants to be made in, to be a fool, wants to feel like you're deceiving yourself. And all of us know our weaknesses and our sinfulness. And it would not be a shock to any one of us if we didn't truly belong to God because we know we don't deserve to belong to God. And so we're trusting in Jesus, but we want evidence to know that we really belong. We're all looking for assurance. We want to know if our relationship with God is real. Have you ever struggled with that? Sometimes we do silly things to feel assurance. 
You ever done a silly thing to, to feel assurance? I did when I was 15 years old. It was real silly um, to, to feel assurance from God. When I was 15 years old, I was on a basketball court, which I usually was when I was 15 years old. Um, when I was on that court, I, was, I really wanted to dunk a basketball. And it may shock you, I used to could dunk a basketball a little bit. When I was 15 years old, I wanted to so bad. And so I prayed, as one does. Um, I pray to God, and I ask him, and I say, if you care about me, if this thing is real, where we have a relationship, will you please help me dunk this ball? <laughs> will you please help me dunk this ball? I, please. And so I went up, and I dunked it. It was the worst thing for my heart, you know? <laughs> I did. I dunked it, and I was like, I know, yes, God is real. He is real, and, and he loves me, and I have a relationship with him, and I was given so much assurance through that. It, it was, have you ever done something silly kind, kind of like that? I, um, I hope so. I feel better. Um, <laughs> here's what we do. We, we want to rely on our subjective experiences as assurance. You know, I don't know. You're... You're, you're driving down the road, you, you see something, uh, maybe you see like a, a squirrel jumping from one branch to the next, and for some reason you're like, God is showing me something there, that that's going to be me, like I'm about to go to my next level in life, and you know, you just, and somehow it just makes you feel like that, I don't know. Don't you love what John offers us here? He says, there are tangible examples in your life that you can actually point to as real evidence that you really and truly belong to the living God. When your heart aches with compassion for another believer in need, you can be sure that you belong to God. When your heart uh, responds and you meet that need through tangible acts of sacrifice and generosity and action, you can know that your faith is real. You can approach God confidently. You can ask of him, as John says here, whatever you need, whatever you want, and you can be sure that he will listen, that he cares, because you are his. But sometimes you don't dunk the basketball, right? And sometimes you don't feel assured because you know that you don't love people the way that you should love them. You know that there's contempt toward other people that is still in your heart, that there's bitterness. That's true for me, and that's true for you. So what do you do when it becomes abundantly clear to you that you're not loving other people as you should? Verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Look, we, we examine our lives, and we see obedience that is coming from faith. But in the end, we look to God and not to ourselves for assurance. We repent of sin. We seek to obey him. We look to God knowing that he is greater than our hearts and that he knows everything. He knows all of our sin far better and he sees it far clearer than we ever will. And he loves us anyway. 
he knows and he remembers the atoning work of Jesus in our place. So despite our condemning conscience, we can remind ourselves that what God has forgiven will remain forgiven. And we can be assured that, assured that he will remain for us and with us. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? That truth never ends. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if you feel guilty this morning after hearing all of these expectations to love other people because you don't love other people, you need to remember that God's love for you is not like your love for other people. It's not strong some, some moments and weak in others. It is constant and it is never changing. He will never, ever, ever stop loving you in Christ. Ever. And he will empower you to love other people as he has loved. 